Welcome to Life to the Full, a message to Christians. This is a podcast about the abundant life that God promises in Scripture. We want to inspire those who are frustrated with themselves and their communities to live a transformed life that will impact the world. Our primary purpose is to be a platform that will impact the world through conversation. We want to invite others to connect and unite in curiosity, vulnerability, and responsibility. A transformed life is about growth, learning, and evolving. A transformed life leads to transformed communities, and transformed communities impact the world. One conversation at a time. Hey everyone, welcome back to A Life to the Full podcast, a message to Christians. I am your co-host. One of two, Jimmy James Daniel Zito McGillicuddy. I am here minus my lovely co-host, Patricia Kelly Zito. Uh, She will be back, or so she promises me, but she's been away for a while. I know you guys are probably getting tired of just seeing uh, this ugly mug, but here we are. That's what we got. Uh, So we are ready to dive back in. We're in our series that we're kind of ending our first year, our journey into scripture. Uh, Oh, we have a YouTube channel now. So if you're watching this on video, please like and subscribe. Even if you're not watching this on video, please go to our YouTube channel. Like and subscribe helps people uh, find a podcast, find a channel, uh, get connected into what we're doing, helps support the show. So any little bit helps if you are listening on a podcast too, or even if you're listening on YouTube, please head over to iTunes as well and give us an iTunes rating and review. Uh, Again, it helps people find us and help support the podcast. But we are in the middle of ending out our first year with this idea of taking journeys into scripture, seeing the Bible as this uncharted territory, this land that we get to explore, and we're going to do it together. Me, you, tell your mama, tell your friend, stealing that from my friend, Mark England. Uh, You know who you are and you know, you know what you did. Uh, So journey into scripture. We're going to be looking at the Bible like this unexplored country, unexplored country that we get to dive into together and explore. I know a lot of us have gotten used to treating our Bibles as the answer book. Uh, I need the answer for X, Y, and Z, and I open it up and I find the answer. But unfortunately, most of the Bible, or I would say fortunately, most of the Bible doesn't behave like an answer book. It behaves like a story, almost 50%, depending on how you calculate it. Some people would say even more than 50% of the Bible is just narratives, stories. Uh, how are stories supposed to tell you uh, what you're doing or what to do? You know, we're going to be exploring that as we get into uh, this narrative. For this short trip, so we're taking three short trips, one into stories or narratives, one into poetry, or one into prose discourse, which is kind of just like, you know, like those logical arguments. So the first trip is narrative, and we're using the book of Jonah as our vehicle. If you're just tuning in with us now, if you are, please go back and listen to the rest. I think you'll enjoy it. But if not, hey, what can I do? I can't make you do anything. Enjoy the journey with us here today. So we're going into Jonah again. And today, so we talked about the, uh, the address of Jonah, where Jonah fits into the larger biblical story, uh, you know, the way the Bible was originally organized. And we talk about if that matters. Uh, we talked about clues, even in the opening lines that kind of showed you where Jonah uh, was in the story, the things that you should have on your brain as you go in to the story. Uh, we, we showed how even the opening lines of the book sent us back into Kings, right? Second Kings, and even sent us way, way back to Genesis, right? Genesis 10 uh, with the table of nations. Uh, so today, and then we read the book of Jonah together out loud uh, as a whole book, which I know is something that we don't often get a chance to do as Christians in public settings is just read whole books of the Bible. Uh, I think it's a shame. It's a tragedy. It's something that we need to get better at as a, as a group, as a church family, just reading large portions of the scripture together uh, and just kind of letting it hang there, right? The way the Bible was originally meant to uh, be taught and to experience just a bunch of people hanging out, 
Hey, can you read? Can you read? Oh, Johnny, he can read. Get over here. Hand him a scroll. Let him read some stuff. All right. So we talked about that. And today we're going to be, we're going to jump right in and we're going to talk about the three main components of narrative. And we're going to apply that, apply that to our book of Jonah. Uh, and so really the goal is uh, when you're leaving this podcast is for you to be able to go to any book of the Bible, any, any great story in the Bible, any great narrative, and do some of the same things that we're doing to kind of get uh, more, you know, meaning from the text, how to approach the text differently than just, uh, okay, this is the basic instructions before leaving earth, copyright Wu-Tang. Um, and, you know, what are the deep truths here of the Bible? What are the deep questions? What's the big conversation here that I'm being tuned into that I'm supposed to be a part of? So again, three main components of narratives, setting, characters, and plot. So we're going to be looking at the setting of the book of Jonah or the settings, the characters, and then we're going to be looking at something called the plot. Uh, and then we're going to be examining the literary design and sketching it out, see if there's anything we can learn from the way things have been uh, pieced together, if we pay close attention. Uh, basically how the author is using these three basic components of any story, you need settings, you need characters, you need plots, and the author is taking those uh, three components and the way they're arranging it, they're getting some type of meaning out of it. They're getting some type of story, right? So the way the, uh, the biblical authors are fusing all these things together is basically it's literary design. And just like, you know, it said form creates function, right? The function of something in many ways determines its form and the way something is formed in many ways determines its function, right? How does this narrative structure determine meaning? When we get into it, what is the author doing with these tools? What, is the, what does the author want us to pay attention to? What does the author want us to walk away thinking? What is the author doing to us as we read this, right? Because all stories do things to us, you know? In some ways, they're more, I wouldn't even say in some ways, I think in every way, they're much, much more powerful than if God had given us a list of things to do and things not to do. I know a lot of people are like, wait, but I thought that was the Bible. No, it's not. Uh, I think if God did give that to us, like um, a, a code of law or something like that, I don't think it would have lasted as long as it did. I think the, um, the story nature of most of the Bible is really what in the end, at the end of the day, really made it last as long as it has. Because these stories are very, 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 very old, right? This isn't like something that was slapped together by Disney. Um, you know, th this is something that, you know, has really formed part of our human identity and what it means to be human. So we're going to start with setting, right? So setting is basically the place where things happen. In some ways, setting can also, you know, almost become a character in and of itself, as we'll see. But where the stories take place uh, are very, very important. Um, so we're gonna work through uh, the story again and write down the different settings that we find. So what we're gonna do with the book of Jonah, right? Uh, you can do uh, with, with any biblical story. And it, you know, it's, it's, rel it's relatively easy. So you take your Bible, you open it up, you find your book of Jonah, and then you, you get to it. You just get to it. So if you've been following along with us last, last episode, last week, whenever it is you're watching this, maybe you're binging it. Maybe you're binging us. That'd be so cool if someone is out there binging these episodes. Like, you know, instead of Netflix and chill, it's a life to the full podcast, YouTube channel and chill. Uh, kind of has a nice, nice ring to it. All right. So I am finding the book of Jonah. My editor tells me I should uh, just stop talking when I do this. Okay. So you find your book of Jonah. See, I found mine. Uh, last week we read from the Jewish Publication Society, the Jewish Study Bible. Uh, today I have my NIV. Uh, don't worry. Uh, please don't. Please don't stop listening. I'm not going to read it full again. 
but we're just going to go through and we're going to we're going to click off the settings. And if you were doing this on your own, okay, you would have like a notepad or you'd have some type of note-taking device and you would just be listing off the settings and where they happen in the narrative. So, let's let's just jump right in. So here we have chapter 1, right? Some of the things that jump off is it begins on the land, right? Jonah is on the land and that's, you know, when God comes to talk to him. Uh, God tells him to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is a place. Nineveh is a city that Jonah is going to go to. And depending on your familiarity with the biblical stories, maybe you're just like, okay, maybe it's like New Jersey. I don't really know. I'm just guessing here. Or, uh, but you know, the biblical author does expect you to have some familiarity with when we say a word like Nineveh, we say a city like Nineveh, right? We looked a little bit about that. I believe it was last week. And then we have Tarshish, right? Tarshish, uh, the ships of Tarshish or Tarshish. Uh, that's something that, you know, is also in the Bible. The biblical author expects you to be aware of it, you know? So he flees to Tarshish. He goes down to Joppa to flee, gets on a ship, right? And then the ship takes him onto the sea. So these are kind of all of our settings for the first chapter. So if you were going to write the movie of Jonah, right? These are the places that you'd want to make sure you found filming locations for. It's like, all right, we're going to need a place for Jonah to meet with God. We're going to need Nineveh, Tarshish, Joppa, the ship, and the sea. And we have chapter two. And chapter two begins, and we're on the sea, right? And by the time we spend a little bit of time on the sea in chapter two, we move on to the fish. And the fish is kind of interesting because the fish in one sense is a character in the story, and the other sense is a setting because Jonah is inside the fish, right? Uh, so it's interesting in this way how sometimes uh, characters or settings can kind of play dual roles. Like, you know, sometimes a setting, a particular setting is so potent, it's so important to the story that it almost becomes a character in and of itself. So we have the sea, we have fish, and then we have this, this weird place called Sheol, right? What, what, what is this strange place called Sheol? It's just a fancy Bible word for the grave, right? Sheol. Or, and then the depths, you know, it talks about going down to the depths and then there's, you know, so we're kind of going down here and then it kind of switches. And this is in Jonah's poem. He looks up towards the holy temple. He sees the holy temple, right? Uh, ideally up on God's holy mountain or up, right? The temple was on the temple mount, right? On his plateau uh, in Jerusalem, holy temple. And then we end up back on the land. Remember the fish vomits Jonah back out onto land. Quickly, then we go to chapter three. And then we're on the land again, right? You can almost kind of see too, that it's like if we begin on the land in chapter one, and then we end on the land in chapter two, and then we begin on the land again in chapter three, and we'll see if there's any significance, significance to that. Then Nineveh is mentioned again. Uh, we know Jonah at this point does go. Uh, there's the throne, right? We, we're taken to the land, we're taken to Nineveh, we're taken into the throne room. And then we're taken to the ashes when the king and his nobles sit in the ashes. All right, see, we'll talk about that in a second. And then in chapter four, we have the city. Jonah's still in Nineveh or the city. And he goes east of the city. And whenever you hear direction uh, in the Bible, you're supposed to pay attention. Maybe that's important. Uh, and then you have in the Jewish study Bible, it's called a booth uh, in my NIV. I believe it's called a shelter. Jonah sets up a shelter or a booth. Uh, the Jewish study Bible, of course, is wants to make sure that you're paying attention and that you remember uh, the Feast of Sukkoth, where they live in booths, right? So that's, that's kind of a little shout out there. Some Jewish high holidays. Um, there is a shelter that he builds, right? And the plant. So there's a shelter that Jonah just built, and then there's a shelter and this plant or this tree, right? So it's like something built by Jonah and God. And then there's just the shelter again, right? So here are all the settings. So when you write them down and you, you know, you might've been, what did I just do? Oh my goodness. How is this really going to help me? 
but just look at the structure. So look at it for a second and think about like, what are some of the things the author uh, wants you to pay attention to? Because the author could have chosen to do this anywhere, right? You could have chosen to put this into a casino, right? Or to into like a MMA fight ring or something like that. I mean, I guess he wouldn't have done that because those things weren't around. Um, but he chose these settings for a reason and it's important for you to pay attention to them. So the land, right? Even back in Genesis, the first pages of Genesis, God has to, you know, separate the waters so that the dry ground could appear or the land. So the land seems to be, you know, very, very important for life. If you don't have land, you can't have life. If you imagine the planet with just water, right? That's not good for us because we'd, we'd have to be swimming all the time, right? Or like, you know, we, we can't live. Life wouldn't happen. Life wouldn't be around as we know it if there wasn't land. So land is kind of a place of safety. Nineveh, as we talked about before, uh, being called the great city, it's only ever referred to that, like that, again, back in Genesis 10, that, that's kind of like where we got sent back, um, I don't know if it was last week or a few weeks ago, when we talked about Nineveh, that great city. Uh, Tarshish, okay, Tarshish is something that you should know if you know your Old Testament. It's a kind of a place that uh, is associated with like a false Eden. So there's the idea of an Eden that's provided by God. And then there's an idea of us, humanity, trying to create Eden on our own. Uh, so if you want to go and you want to look, do a Bible word search for the ships of Tarshish, you can look at that. Um, it's big in the Solomon, Solomon narrative uh, where it talks about how, you know, they would get stuff from... Tarshish, you know, and how that was kind of part of whole Solomon's whole downfall and how this idea of Tarshish has always kind of been associated with uh, people trying to build or to create their own ideal lives, their own Eden spaces um, on their own wisdom rather than, you know, relying on the wisdom of God to inform them how to occupy and exist in those spaces. And then there's Joppa. Joppa is a city usually referred to as, as very beautiful, very idyllic on the shores. And then you have a ship, right? You have the ship and you have the sea. So we talked about before, there's this, this separation of the land and the sea, right? The dry ground and the waters and the waters is like chaos. The, where the waters are life, like us can't exist. Humans can't exist. Obviously the life is, uh, you know, full. The oceans are full of life, right? Anyone who's seen a cool documentary on the oceans, like Blue Planet or something like that, you know that there's lots of life in the water. Uh, but that's not the point here necessarily. Uh, the idea is to just keep that in your head that there's order, there's ordered spaces where life can exist, life can flourish, and then there's chaotic spaces which are watery, watery and chaotic where people can't live. Um, you have the fish, um, you have Sheol, which is like the grave or death, um, you know, a lot of traditions, you know, even the Christian church traditions have come accustomed to accepting death as being like a natural part of life. Well, you know, that's great, I guess, you know, uh, but that's not a biblical point of view. That's fine if that's your point of view and that's, you know, how you think of it. But in the Bible, death is like the great enemy. Death is the, you know, what happens in the beginning when everything goes tragically wrong and death is something that we've been dealing with since the fall of man or the fall of humanity uh so there's this idea of death or the grave the depths right this idea that you know the waters that's where you know there's chaos creatures and chaos things and things that are are almost like um against human life and against um you know, God in some ways, even though God created them and had sovereign sovereignty over, over them. Uh, the Holy Temple, that's something that you should be aware of too. So all of these things together, uh, also Sheol depths and ashes. So in chapter three, the king and his nobles, they repent in sackcloth and ashes. They sit in the ashes or in, in the dust, I think it says in the uh, NIV. Um, that's associated also with Sheol, or the grave, in a sense, they're, you know, they're going to the same place that Jonah went, but they're going on their own. So they're like humbling themselves onto death in the ashes. And then, you know, east of the city, 
Um, whenever you go east of something, that's not a good thing. Uh, when they were expelled from the garden, Adam and Eve went east of Eden. So that's kind of always the idea of, you know, as you go further and further east, you're getting farther and farther away from what God intended and what God wanted. So we worked through the story. We wrote down all our settings. Uh, we talked a little bit about what are some things that are significant about those settings. Um, that's kind of the fun part, you know, as you, you get through, you kind of list everything off, grab your concordance, grab your Bible gateway.com and kind of just start listing that stuff out and being like, okay, what, grab a good commentary or what a, a good Bible dictionary would be even better. Cause usually a Bible dictionary, you could go and you can go land, you can go Niva, you can go Sheol and I'll have a whole little article about everything that, you know, biblically you should be informed of when you're hearing these terms. Uh, the Bible never mentions things <laughs> without a reason. They're like the best author ever. There's no wasted space. Everything is mentioned for a reason, and it's informed mostly by the biblical story, although we also can learn a lot from the historical cultural context. I'm not going to really go that into that today. A, I'm not an archaeologist, and B, it's like it's just way too deep. I think the best thing for, for you guys is just to stick, especially if, if you're not used to doing this at all, is to stick with the Bible and to try and dig into what does the Bible say about some of these things. Uh, so we just kind of sketched it all out. Um, we, we listed all of the places that we found, all the, all the setting changes, and we kind of just had a conversation about it. That's kind of the best place to start when you're trying to break apart these narratives is just to be like, okay, where where does where do things happen? Where do the characters go? And that will start to inform you maybe something about where the story is going, right? So the next thing we would look at would be characters. We want to know who are the characters, what are they doing? Are there any similarities between the characters? Are people doing similar things, right? And I, you know, if you're looking at this picture here, it's a woman in the desert. She kind of got a blanket around her. Her back is to us. And you can almost see like here is a character here. There's a story. This picture is telling a story, you know, or you can make a story up uh, based on, you know, a picture like this. You can look at this and you can be like, oh, what, what's her name? How did she get here? Is she lost? Um, is her tent just outside of the field of view? Like, is she lost? Uh, what, what's going on? So, you know, you can tell a lot of stories just by brainstorming characters. Uh, so the first thing we would do, we would just kind of list off, okay, so who, who are our characters in the different uh, literary units in the different chapters? So chapter one, we have the Lord, we have God, right? First, then we have Jonah. And again, you, again, you could just go ahead and we, we would just read through. It'd be like, every time we, another character comes, write that sucker down, write that bad boy down. And that's going to help us, uh, you know, really just do a deep dive into the text and kind of decode what uh, we can be getting out of this, right? So you have the Lord, you have Jonah, you have the Ninevites. Again, they're not in the scene, but they're kind of mentioned in chapter one. Go to Nineveh, that great city, uh, their, their wickedness. So even though the Ninevites haven't appeared yet, they're kind of in the background, uh, and again, you know, if you don't know anything about Ninevites, you might be like, who, who is this? I don't, I don't know. It's just like people from New Jersey. I don't know. <clears throat> but it's something that it's like, you know, the Bible calling, okay, maybe there's, there's more things to know here. Then there's the sailors, right? He boards the ship. The ship was in their setting with the sailors. He connects with the sailors and they go into the sea. Uh, and then there's the Lord. Again, the Lord hurls a great storm. And there's Jonah. There's the captain, right? Jonah sleeping, the captain comes. Um, there's the sailors again. There's Jonah. And then it kind of ends with the sailors. So here's all of our characters from chapter one. So it's basically, you know, we could, if we wanted to take out Nineveh, the Ninevites, because they're, they're like background characters here, they're kind of just mentioned, right? You basically have God, the Ninevites, um, I'm sorry, God, the sailors, Ninevites aren't here yet and Jonah. So you have God, the sailors, and Jonah in our, in our chapter one. In chapter two, we have God again. We have the Lord. We have Jonah. We have the fish. And remember, the fish is also a setting. 
So the fish is kind of acts as a setting as well as a character. And then we also have Jonah. And then we have the Lord, right? Jonah prays inside the fish and the Lord hears his prayer. Chapter three, we have, so in chapter two, we have the Lord, Jonah, and the fish. Okay. Chapter one, the Lord, the, sail the sailors, and Jonah. Chapter two, the Lord, the fish, and Jonah. And in chapter three, again, we have the Lord just reading it through. Uh, and then next character we encounter is Jonah. And then we have the Ninevites. We have the king. We have the nobles. We have man and beast. Okay. Even the the cows have something to do here. And then we end with God or the Lord again. Uh, chapter four, we have Jonah, the Lord, the worm, and then Jonah. So when you sketch this all out, you know, and I recommend you do this for, for every narrative you encounter in the Bible, um, you know, obviously read it over many, many times quickly, as quickly as you can, just to kind of get the sense of it. But then when you're ready to go in and kind of try and figure out maybe what all this means, or what this, what this is pointing to, what this is trying to communicate, start, start doing this stuff. So you want to look for, okay, what are they doing? Are there any similarities in the placements of the character? One of the first things that jumps out at me is that we have, we have some animals, right? We have some non-human entities. Uh, we have the fish and we have the worm. And we have the fish in chapter two, and we have the worm in chapter four. So there might be something going on there. Uh, some other similarities in characters. We have the sailors, right, who are pagans. They don't fear God, at least not in the beginning of the story. And we have the Ninevites, who aren't God's people, right? They're a pagan nation, a nation of Gentiles. So, and that's in chapter one and three, right? So there, there could be something there with the placement of the characters uh, and Jonah, you know, also being compared to some of these uh, people groups that aren't of God's people, aren't of the family of God, right? These pagan sailors and the Gentile kingdom or the city of Nineveh, the pagan city of Nineveh. And now we get to everyone's favorite part of stories. There's plot. And this is where everything comes together, right? Because you can have settings, you can have characters, and then if you have nothing for them to do, you just have, I guess, my house on a Monday night. No, I'm kidding. Uh, things need to happen, right? Things need to happen to your characters. Things need to happen in these places. Uh, and you know, a lot of times if it's, if it's a story worth telling, uh, there, there's maybe some type of tragic component to it. Maybe there's a comedic component to it. The book of Jonah is set up very much like satire. Uh, I think it's supposed to make you laugh. It's supposed to make you go, wait, what? What happened? Even though it kind of has that twist ending as we'll, we'll get to. Um, but plot, yes, it's like, what happens? Why are we talking about this? Why are we writing about this? You know, and there's, there's a lot of different debates going on whether or not, um, you know, these stories, like some people throw around words like historical narratives, right? The idea being that this, this is history. This is a history told as a story. And you know, we have no doubt that these things happen. They happen the way they're said. They happen in the biblical story, the historical narratives. And there's another camp that says, well, maybe, but, you know, more than likely, there's some kernel of truth here. There's something that this was based on. And, but the author or authors have, you know, purposely arranged details and facts to tell not only the best story that they could tell, uh, which, I believe in many cases they have, all the cases they have. Uh, but what it also does, it's they've arranged this for a particular purpose, right? Remember John and his gospel, at the end of his gospel, he says, you know what? There's so many other things I could tell you guys about, but, you know, the world doesn't have enough books. You know, probably hyperbole, but you never know. Um, so he's basically telling us there's, there's so many things I could have told you about Jesus that I'm just not because it didn't serve the point of my gospel, didn't serve the point of my narrative. So getting into plot, basically what happens. And most plots kind of follow an intro, an introduction, right? There's, you're introduced to characters, some settings, uh, a place, a world. Uh, there's some type of conflict that usually happens, you know, right away. 
unless it's some type of artistic story that you know kind of like blurs the lines or changes the rules but nobody but film students watch those anyway usually the conflict happens right away you know almost as soon as we're introduced to the characters and the setting uh the best authors can attach us to characters and places in just a few paragraphs um we're already in we're already like invested in the story there's some type of conflict that needs to be resolved and that conflict tends to dominate the entire story and so you have conflict you have you can call it rising tension or rising conflict uh, so you have the intro you have the conflict and then the tension rises or the conflict builds until you have a climax and then that then there's a resolution of the climax and you have some type of aftermath and it kind of creates a little like bar like not a bar you know what i mean one of those graphs that kind of goes like this looks like a whale <laughs> probably shouldn't talk about that when i'm talking about the book of jonah we don't want to get into the silly whale fish drama right that's the basic idea of a plot so let's let's sketch out our jonah okay and this is where it, it gets i think more interesting for people um you know i love I'm, I'm kind of a book nerd so i love this stuff uh shout out to alder's book how to read a book love that book taught me how to read a book um but even like my works of fiction you know like I love doing that. I, I love dissecting characters. I love dissecting the settings. I understand it's not for everybody. I think it's still something that people should learn how to do, especially if you want to be a serious student of the Bible, if you take this whole Christianity thing seriously, you should be a good reader of the biblical text. You should know the stories. You should know the settings. But we're getting into plot. This is kind of like where, okay, this is something that most people can pay attention to and stick around for. So in chapter one, we have arise go right uh god tells jonah get up and go to nineveh jonah flees right away that's that's the conflict oh no god's man god's prophet just didn't do what god told him to do and some of you might be reading this and being like i didn't even know that you could do that i thought if you were a prophet of god god kind of just like plugged in his spirit into you and you kind of just like tensed up and you just did whatever God wants you to want you to do or want you to say. Uh, but apparently, according to the book of Jonah, that that's not true. The prophet still has some type of free will there uh, to obey or disobey God, depending on what they want to do, you know? Uh, so arise, go, Jonah flees. That's the conflict right off the bat. We're like, oh no, this is terrible. What's going to happen? And the rest of the story is going to resolve that conflict for us. Uh, he boards the ship, right? He, he gets, he goes down to Joppa. He boards a ship. Uh, there's a terrible storm. And, and it's said that God hurls or God casts the storm upon the sea, right? There's a storm. It's a crazy storm. The sailors are afraid. They're terrified. They think they're going to die, right? They're, they, they do all types of stuff to try and save the ship, right? Uh, but Jonah is sleeping down in the belly of the ship, you know, and the, the author seems to make a point that, to make sure that you know that Jonah is in the bottom of the ship and he's sleeping, right? So Jonah is asleep. Uh, and then the captain comes, touches Jonah. How can you sleep at a time like this, right? And then uh, Jonah gets up. They still don't know why this is happening to them. They figured it must be someone's fault. Is it you? Is it you? Listen, Carl, I know what you did. I know I know why this is happening. I mean, I don't know if that was happening, but they, they were convinced apparently that it was someone's fault. So they, they cast lots because I guess, what else do you do when you have an important decision to make, but get out some dice and roll them, right? I don't know. I don't know what to do in this important life or death this situation. Let me just flip a coin on it. But that's what they did, right? They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And so Jonah's kind of revealed as this is his fault. And they start questioning him intensely about the whole thing. And he basically says, just, just throw me overboard. I know that this has happened because of you. Um, but they don't do that right away. They attempt to make it back to shore. They, they start throwing stuff off, I guess, somehow making a ship lighter. I don't know. Obviously, they don't sail boats. Um, you know, at least, you know, I only, only sail the boats, boats that I have in my bathtub, you know, play with my boats. Don't really do that. Um, but they attempt to go to shore. It doesn't work. And so, 
you know, what happens next is the sailors pray. They basically pray to Jonah's God, right? Let, let us be innocent of this man's blood. Um, and then they throw Jonah overboard, right? And then suddenly the sea becomes calm. Um, and the sailors fear, it says they feared a great fear. They feared God or they feared Yahweh. Uh, and they offer sacrifice, sacrifices and vows to God, right? right? Right on the spot, right on the boat. So it's kind of very dramatic uh, scene one. And then scene two or chapter two, right? God provides a fish to swallow Jonah. I, I know a lot of people like to argue whether it's a fish or a whale. I don't care. Could have been anything. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the point. It's a creature from those chaos waters, right? We talked about the sea as being a place that's, you know, opposed to life or opposed to God's good creation. So you have, or unordered creation is the seas, right? So you have this fish, this chaos creature that comes up and swallows Jonah. Uh, he spends three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, just like he was sleeping in the belly of the ship. Now he's in the belly of the fish. Um, Jonah prays. Jonah prays, uh, basically, you know, he's descending down into the depths. Um, it talks about, this is the poem where we got that setting before from Sheol, the depths, all your waves and breakers are, come over me. Um, I look up towards your holy, holy hill, towards your temple. This idea of Jonah, like struggling in the waters, being sucked down, seaweed and kelp wrapping around him. He's being dragged down to the depths, down to the roots of the mountains and inside the fish, uh, you know, some people would say that this, at this point, the fish came and swallowed Jonah. Uh, you know, my first several readings, I always just assumed that Jonah went in the water and it was like, Bloop! the fish just came up, but we don't really know necessarily. Some people read the poem as, as saying, okay, like, yeah, God said that he sent a fish to swallow Jonah, but then he tells you all the backstory. So that's something great for you guys to discuss and think about uh, the scent of Jonah. He looks up at the temple um, you know, and he promises sacrifices and vows, which this is very, very different than the sailors, right? Because the sailors actually did sacrifices and vows and Jonah kind of just promises. So we, we don't really know if he's going to, um, but you know, it's kind of like he's promising, you know, if you can always, you can remember, you know, whenever you've been in a tough situation or there's always that joke, you know, when, when someone is, has a hangover or they drank too much the night before, they're throwing up in the toilet and they're like, God, never again. If you just make me feel better, then they feel better. And the next day they go out drinking and doing whatever. Um, but so we don't know if that, if Jonah means it at this point, or if, you know, he's just kind of like trying to tell God what he wants to hear is, is he trying to, in a sense, manipulate God, God, I know you like animals to be sacrificed to you. I know you like when people make vows, I'll do that please just get me out of here. I know that's what I'm supposed to do. We, we don't really know. Or he could just be like, this is, he could be repentant at this point. We, we just, the context doesn't make it necessarily clear, right? And the fish vomits Jonah onto, onto, dry, ground, onto dry ground, onto the land. Jonah's on the land again, right? So he's like, it worked, right? You know, so Let's see, chapter three, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah again, arise, go. And this time, <laughs> Jonah goes, all right, this looks good, he goes. So at this point, it looks like things are going, Jonah maybe is repenting, he's back on track, he's ready to do this, he's ready for some prophetic magic, he's ready to drop some knowledge on these Ninevites, do what he's supposed to do. Um, and it says he goes on a three-day journey three-day journey, because when he reaches Nineveh, it says Nineveh is a great city, exceedingly large, journey takes three days, um, which maybe it actually did, but there does seem to be some parallelism to, you know, Jonah being three days and three nights in the belly of the fish with a three-day journey, so there could be something there. Um, you know, this is one instance where an extra biblical source um, can help you kind of with understanding this, kind of some of the Assyrian uh, or Babylonian epics and stories um, that, you know, that Middle Eastern world, that Fertile Crescent world that the Bible and the people of the Bible come out of, uh, you know, in those stories and those ancient myths and those ancient stories, a journey to the underworld is said to take three days, 
takes about three days. Just a little tidbit for you guys there. Jonah gives his sermon, right? His sermon is basically, I'll read it in NIV. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. So either that's uh, the biggest understatement of the Bible, like, you know, like that's just a summary of what Jonah said, or, you know, some people would say, wait a minute, is Jonah just giving like the bare minimum here? Like, is he just basically trying to, you know, keep God happy? He was like, okay, that's what you told me. Um, Cause it doesn't really seem like he's trying to sell it or at least, you know, I guess it can go either way in the narrative. We'll see what happens. And then surprise, surprise, Nineveh repents. Nineveh repents, it changes its mind. Uh, it's saved. It's, God is not going to, God forgives them. God relents from bringing the disaster that he said that he was going to bring to them. And that brings us to chapter four. And if you're a VeggieTales fan, you're like, wait a minute, I thought it ended with them all singing because Jonah finally did what he was supposed to do. It's kind of cold in here, so dancing feels good kind of get warm anyway chapter four jonah's upset jonah is upset and jonah prays where did jonah pray before he prayed in chapter two in the fish right so jonah prays uh and he he kind of says the reason why he fled and i'll, I'll read this and i want to go more over this next week when we kind of close out our little short journey on narrative uh but jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick, quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So Jonah now finally tells us why he fled. So, you know, if you're tracking with the story at the beginning, it's a big conflict, Jonah flees. We don't really know why why he ran away from God, but now he says it. He basically says, this is why I didn't want to listen to you because I knew that you're just a forgiver and you just, you, you let people off the hook. You, you forgive people. You're a dirty forgiver, right? So it's like a little weird, a little weird, right? And it's, it's supposed to, I think, hit you like that. Um, wait, what? Why? Why, why? why were you angry? You know, God gives him his mission and he does it and he succeeds at it. And, you know, if you were tracking with what we did, I believe it was last week or the week before about, you know, the context of Jonah, maybe you're like, okay, I get it. You know, next chapter over, the, you know, there's this great blessing from God because uh, basically because the king, the king and the administration was not good. God decided to bless them, but Jonah was a part of that. And I think a lot of times we can get confused when good things happen to us. We associate that with ourselves, that we must have been doing something right versus, you know, God is deciding to bless us, uh, sometimes regardless of, you know, how, how we choose to live our lives. Um, so maybe, you know, you're tracking with that, you understand, okay, uh, one chapter over the Assyrians, uh, whose capital city is Nineveh, we're going to come in and take all that blessing away, uh, carry people off in exile. So maybe, you know, you're tracking with that. Um, but it just seems like a weird thing to be angry with God about, you know, um, so I think it's meant to be shocking. And then he asks to die. He's like, I'm just, just kill me. This, I knew you were going to do this. Just take my life and this misery, you know, and God questions Jonah for the first time, you know, is it right for you to be this angry? And then he leaves to see what will happen. So he leaves the city. So if you're imagining that this is like the movie, right? You have these big scenes, right? Jonah in the city doing his one line sermon and then it kind of zoom all the Ninevites are repenting. They're falling down into the dust and the ashes and they're putting sackcloth on themselves, their kids, their dogs, their cats, their animals, everything. Uh, and it zooms right in and you see Jonah like angry praying at God. I think, you know, sometimes we think of prayers as like, you know, we're folding our hands, we're kneeling down on our bedsides and uh, we're, we're whispering sweet things to God. But, you know, when I see prayers in the Bible, I see people wrestling with God, you know, really like having it out with God. Like, I don't understand God. That's what we see here with Jonah. Jonah is upset. He's not afraid to tell God he's upset. And he's like, you know what? Just kill me. Just do it. Right. So he leaves the city and he builds this shelter and he sits under it because he wants to see what's going to happen to the city. 
<laughs> he's like, I'm still hoping that you're going to rain some judgment down on this city. I'm going to sit here until you do it. Or maybe he's even holding God accountable. He's trying to hold God accountable. Uh, maybe what we would call like a prayer vig vigil. Like, you know, we, there's some things that we want from God. So we're not going to eat or we're going to lock ourselves in our room until, you know, God makes it happen. Um, you know, and then God provides a shade. So Jonah built his own shelter and then God helps him out seemingly um, by providing shade. In the NIV, I believe it says a vine. In the Jewish study Bible, it said a certain type of tree. Um, you know, so it's a supposedly a notoriously hard Hebrew word to translate. I guess I'll find out uh, in the fall when I take Hebrew one at Western Seminary, which I'm excited about. But God provides shade uh, for Jonah. And Jonah is like psyched about this shade. He's like so happy. The Bible is just like, he's just, I don't know, just the shade is making him really, really happy. Jonah was very happy. But then God sends a worm to eat at the tree, to eat at the vine. And then the vine goes away. And God sends, you know, a scorching east wind. There's that direction again, right? And Jonah becomes very faint. He's very, very tired. Uh, and then he asks to die a second time. So he asks to die once, and then he asks to die twice. And that will become important next week. Um, God questions Jonah a second time. Do, is it, re do you really, really, Jonah? You, you want to die? Okay. You know, drama much. Um, and then God, you know, explains himself. And we'll, we'll read that again this time in the NIV. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine. Like you were so psyched about this vine, um, though you did not tend it or make it grow. I, I, I did that. That was me. Uh, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. It was, it, it was nothing. It was just a vine. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And many cattle as well. Should I, should I not be concerned with that great city? And then as we talked about last week when we read the whole thing together, it just ends, you know? So if we were going to sketch this out, right? Again, we have the introduction, go to Nineveh. We have the initial conflict, Jonah flees. And then we have that rising tension. There's a storm. There's a, something, something crazy happens with a fish. The fish that gets sick and, you know, vomits Jonah out. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah again, all attention's rising. He goes, he preaches, there's repentance. And like the climax is like him storming out of the city, angry. You know, I think if we were writing the story, you know, I think, you know, something like the VeggieTales, the when they rewrote the story, they were like, you know what? This, this doesn't seem to jive with the way I think of stories. The story should end with Jonah happy and the people of Nineveh happy and everyone like, yay, don't run away from God. And there's some type of song and dance. Uh, I don't know if that's the way they dance. I don't really watch VeggieTales all that often. Um, but, you know, I think for a modern reader, the way we conceive of stories, we have to ask ourselves, is there actually a resolution? What's going on with this story? What is this story meant for us to think? What are we supposed to think about this? What did the original hearers think about this? Um, you know, I think I think the most the way most Christian circles would get together and would explore a text like this would be like you know they read a passage, read a little bit of scripture, and then you you're like, all right, what does everybody think? And then everyone just says what they think, you know, like, oh, this reminds me of a time I was in third grade and I didn't want to eat my vegetables. And my mom said, make Jesus happy, eat your vegetables or, or you know, when I ate my, whatever. I think, you know, we're used to thinking that everyone's point of view when it comes to the scriptures is equally valid. And this might seem strange uh, coming from me with everything I've been saying, but I actually, I push back against that a little bit. I think you know, the Bible is trying to inform us how we're supposed to be taking these texts. Um, what are we supposed to be getting out of it? Now, because it's the Bible, and as we'll see, hopefully coming out of next week, especially with these stories, it goes so deep that every time you think you've found like that layer, like it's almost like you're digging through like an archeological dig, you're digging through some runes, you're finding this amazing stuff. It's almost every time you think you, you've hit the bottom, 
you realize like you're not even near the bottom. There's 20 more layers. The, the layers keep going. The depths of wisdom and knowledge and things that you can think and get out of this is, is deep and endless. But I do think the Bible is pushing us towards uh, understanding these stories in a certain way. Uh, and because it is the Bible, and, uh, and one of the ways that I, I do believe the Bible is dual authored by both man and God, is because I think the, the eternal component, the God component, makes these stories speak into every generation and into every age. You know, and I think so. I think sometimes we're we're accustomed to being like, no. When, when I have a Bible talk and I, I read these things, um, I'm just asking questions and like whatever people say, that's 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 great. I'm supposed to go, oh wow, thanks, bro, thanks, sis. That was that was super interesting. Instead of like, but why do you think that? Defend it in the text. Show me, show me, show me what you're doing here. Um, and so I think I'm more comfortable with entering into a text like this and being like, I am confused. <laughs> I am disturbed. Where's my Jonah five where God and Jonah go out for a cup of coffee and then they won't ride on a Ferris wheel and they're BFFs forever. Uh, or, you know, where's, where's the place where, you know, something, where, where's, where's the conclusion. And it's almost like the biblical story. It has no resolution. It's meant to hang there like a question, like, what are you going to do? What's your response to all this. And I think, you know, even like, you know, reading through it now again for this course, I'm always kind of caught a little bit off guard when I get to this point in the story, because the deeper I go into this, the less it becomes about, you know, something that I can't relate to, less it becomes about, well, did this happen or didn't this happen? And the more it becomes about, well, how is this story changing me? And I don't mean how is the story changing me by how is it telling me what to do or but how is it speaking into my life you know how how is it that this this is working on me because you know it, it is doing it does something to you you know and I think you know but sometimes we can also just use these scriptures as just like a sermon illustration you know I know a lot of people are like ah, I've done the book of Jonah we just did it at my church uh, we used it to you know people were having trouble doing this. People are having trouble to do that. We use the book of Jonah to say, well, you know, if you, if you're not doing what you know, you're supposed to be doing or what we're t trying to tell you that you're supposed to be doing. Um, you don't want to end up fighting God. You don't want to end up running away from God. Um, don't be a fool. You know, like Jonah, Jonah, see at the end, Jonah did what God wanted to do anyway, but there's more to the story, right? Just like a lot of times we go into the gospels and we look at, you know, the tale of the prodigal son or, you know, the son of the rich man, right? And we, we forget that the story really isn't about the son that goes away and spends all the money on prostitutes and wild living and comes back. The story is really about the older son who's upset that his dad had so much forgiveness for the younger son. And the way the biblical authors, authors have set things up where, you know, you really, you can start anywhere in the Bible and it will, it will lead you to all the other parts of the Bible, right? And almost like this infinite like combination or infinite like journey that can take you to all of these different places. So what do we do with all this? So what we do is we, we try and look at this stuff and we try and see, well, what is the author trying to point us to? And one of the ways the, author, the authors do this is what's called literary design elements. or they set things up in a, in a certain way? So for instance, we kind of pointed this out a little bit before in chapter one and chapter three, um, there's some parallels like arise and go, right? That's how it begins in chapter one. And that's how it begins in chapter two. And it goes, there's two groups of pagans, two groups of Gentiles, people who don't fear God, there's sailors and there's Ninevites. And they're both in danger of perishing, one from a storm from Yahweh and one from a judgment that's about to be brought upon them from Yahweh, from God. So there's this parallel here, right? So maybe there's something that we're supposed to, there's something about these pagans and the way they respond to God that should inform us of what this book is about comparing to the way Jonah responds, right? 
when Jonah prays, the two, the two times that Jonah prays in chapter two and chapter four. In chapter two, right, Jonah, pray, get me out of here, save my life. Uh, it, it's about to be it for me, I'm about to die. Uh, Jonah prays and he's, he says he's going to offer vows and sacrifices, but he actually never does in the narrative. He, that never happens, right? God blesses him, right? Even though he might have said he was going to repent, he, there was never really any true repentance because we have chapter four and we know that there was never any true repentance. Contrast that to the, the pagans in the story who actually, the sailors actually do offer vows and sacrifices. They feared a great fear. And the Ninevites actually repent. They actually repented, at least in the story, in sackcloth and ashes. Like, you know, they almost humbled themselves onto death, right? They actually responded to God and God relented. God saved the sailors. You know, you can argue that the sailors were in trouble because of Jonah, right? Uh, but the Ninevites, they kind of got through their own mess and God saves them too. So looking at this, and that's why I think it's so important to when you're going into these biblical narratives to really examine all of these uh, literary components like setting character and plot, you can see that there's some type of symmetrical design, some type of design pattern here that's informing the text for us, right? And we're we're meant to see this. This isn't this isn't just this this isn't just a bug in the code, right? This isn't just something that happened. Oh wow, look at this happy little accident. No, no, this was intentional. This was anyone who's ever tried to write a story. You know, I've I've always wanted to write stories. Uh, I'm a big fan consumer of literature, sci-fi, fantasy, uh, you know, mystery regular regular stories modern stories old stories myths legends i love stories anyone who's now tried to turn around and do any of this knows that this is this is hard <laughs> this doesn't just happen this isn't a first draft kind of thing this is multiple drafts over many 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 years right and the other literary design i'm going to point out to you is just like concept and directions right just the word if anyone noticed the word down this is kind of like a big one that's often pointed out uh, when you get into Jonah. Uh, Jonah went down to jo Joppa, down into the ship, down into the far reaches of a ship, and he went down asleep, right? And he had to be woken up by the captain, and when they threw him overboard, uh, even though Jonah's trajectory was down, the sailors in this story, they sent vows and sacrifices up. So while Jonah was on the way down, while Jonah was on his descent spiral, the sailors from this experience were on their way up. They were looking towards the God of heaven, Yahweh God, um, God, right? And in chapter two, right, he goes down to the, while they're going up, Jonah's continuing, continuing his descent downwards. He goes down into the inner parts of the fish, down into the grave, Sheol, down into the deep, down to the base of the mountains, uh, where he, you know, finally says, if you get me out of this, I, I will offer you thanks, vows, and sacrifice you know but it's kind of like hanging in the air like but will you and you know from what we know from the story he he doesn't we know that that's never in the narrative where he goes and he offers vows and sacrifices it seems to actually be quite the opposite so you know in many ways the biblical texts concern themselves more with asking the right questions than giving you all the answers you have to remember you know, as they say, as Tim Mackey and John say over in the Bible Project, this is Jewish meditation literature. It's stuff that you're meant to chew on. It's stuff that you're meant to uh, think about. You're meant to turn this over. You know, like you can see this person, uh, you know, sitting, I think this is a glacier in Greenland, you know, and, you know, I think even when people encounter things like this in nature, it's like, well, how, how did this happen? Where did this come from? What's, what's the story here? Um, and the Bible is the same, you know, it's, it's not just, I think a lot of people can misunderstand um, some of the things I say, some of the things I do when I get into these stories. This isn't a free-for-all postmodern paradise when it comes to interpreting the scripture. This isn't just basically whatever you think the text says, whatever the text means to you, you get to, you know, you get to think that and no one's ever going to challenge you or push back. I, I think on the contrary, we need to be engaging each other 
Uh, we need to be talking about this. We need to dare to disagree. We need to dare to sometimes even be offensive with each other just so we can have some of these conversations about well, what do these things mean? Because, uh, you know, as we'll see more next week, if you really think about it, the whole point of Jonah, it's almost like an allegory of like the whole history of Israel, where basically they miss the point. Jonah is angry at God. And this is why a lot of people think that, you know, Jonah was written either during the time of the exile or, you know, after, maybe even long after the time of the exile, looking back and reflecting. Because there's this question that, and there's this anger. You forgave a pagan nation, but you wouldn't forgive us? I thought this story was about us. I thought we were the chosen people. I thought we were the one who were the inheritors of the promise. And you're, you're doing this and you're sending a prophet of God to help do that? You know, I think the book of Jonah, like the rest of the Bible, is inviting us into a much larger conversation. It's not trying to tell you what to do, right? It's not trying to tell you what to do. Like, look both ways before you cross the street. Make sure you drink, I don't know, 100 gallons of water every day so you'll be healthy. No, it's inviting you into a conversation. It's not trying to tell you what to do. It's trying to engage you and change you in ways that only the most important conversations in your life can, or the stories that you have inside of yourself, the stories that maybe you tell yourself or the stories that someone else gave you. And the Bible here is trying to give you a story, right? It's an old story. It's an amazing story. It's a story that's lasted all this time. And I think sometimes the danger is we can become like Jonah as a church, right? We can be like, well, I thought, you know, I thought the whole point of this was the church. The whole point of this for Jesus coming was to create his church on earth. Now the church is here. Yay, us, we're here. And now the world has light. The world has salt. And the world has, you know, people just go and spread the gospel. And then you look at the thousands of years of church history and you're like, wow, maybe we've lost the story too. Maybe we've, like Jonah, and like, you know, the people who I think Jonah here is supposed to represent, Maybe there's something larger here that God's trying to do. Maybe there's a bringing of the world back together that God wants us to be a part of. And that, you know, how is it that we exist? How do we speak our own lives, our own stories into the world? Are we speaking lives into the world that divide people with our judgments of right and wrong? Right, like Jonah was pretty upset at that. You know, how could you bless these people? Don't you know who they are? The Assyrians? Really? Or, you know, could we, like I think the biblical author might be calling us to, look for opportunities of grace and forgiveness and ways to bless people that are even outside of the church. And I don't mean bless people by, you know, like, you know, like giving money to a charity, or though I, you know, I think it's very, very important. I think of blessing people more of like the people in your life, the people around you, uh, maybe even the people who aren't Christians. Is your life so compelling without you even saying anything that there's something about you that brings the world together? You know, I think in the story of Jonah, God did accomplish that, but it was in the spite of Jonah. Rather, rather than because of. God was trying to enter into a partnership with Jonah and Jonah didn't. Jonah didn't want to do it. God accomplished it anyway. Uh, and I think, you know, for us, we have to wonder like, what is God accomplishing in our churches and our communities despite us, not because of us? And to me, that's, that's, that's the haunting part of the book of Jonah. Like, I think it's funny. I think it's fantastic. I think it's a great story. Uh, but when I think about it, and I, th I meditate on my own life, that's, that's where I always go back to is in what ways, you know, am I being like Jonah in these situations? And, uh, you know, like Jonah, I also have an opportunity to repent. And just like it is in the book of Jonah, it's kind of like, it's not a foregone conclusion. I have a choice. So does Jonah. And so do you.
So that kind of wraps up our talking about uh, literary components. Um, so character setting, plot, the way the author uses them and arranges them kind of should inform our meaning or inform our interpretation of the text. Uh, next week, our final part of our narrative journey, and then we're gonna be moving on to poetry, we're gonna go into the Psalms, um, is we're gonna be looking more at how the book of Jonah alludes to all these other stories in the Bible. And we're not gonna be able to do an exhaustive list. I don't think we've even found all of them. I think the longer you're at this, the more you keep see there's more ways that the Bible keeps talking to itself. Um, even you know, in a small little book like the book of Jonah, um, we're going to look at that and we're going to talk about how maybe some of those stories can inform what we're supposed to get out of Jonah. So we're going to kind of like look at the illusions. Uh, you might have even picked up on some of them already, uh, especially if you're reading closely with us here. And then we're going to want to close it out. So thank you guys so much. I appreciate all of you spending this time with me, whether you're on the podcast or you're on the YouTube, but wherever you are, adios muchachos. And adios muchachas. <laughs> Daddy?